0: it's december 13th a monday and we welcome you to real talk this episode of the show is presented by the team at bitcoin well our title sponsors canada's only publicly traded bitcoin atm company more than 200 bitcoin atms across the country more of them internationally well well, why bitcoin well you ask aren't there apps for that There's a whole bunch of reasons, including that white glove service, personal one-on-one attention, and the non-proprietary or non-custodial element of their business. In other words, they're not hanging on to your Bitcoin. They're making sure you have it ASAP. It's relevant, and they can explain why more in person. You can find them under the Sponsors tab on our website at RyanJesperson.com.
1: Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson.
0: Mondays, we have a lot to talk about. And the show's going to move fast in uh, just about two minutes. I'm going to chime in my thoughts and yours what you're sharing with me by way of our unscientific unofficial Twitter poll that's up right now on uh, my Twitter profile at Ryan Jesperson and of course Sarah Hoyles as well can can retweet that you of course I'm sure are following our official account at Real Talk RJ but uh, I'm going to take a look at that coming up the numbers uh, we're asking you what you think is going to happen with Brian Jean's big nomination race win he will be the United Conservative Party's nominee for the upcoming by-election in Fort McGill. Murray Lac uh, Here's the thing. He's running on a platform of taking down the leader. I mean, this isn't even the Trojan horse. This is just like the army at the gates and the, the king opening the gates, putting down that drawbridge and letting that army walk in. But how powerful is the army? How strong are the king's defenses? These are the questions we want to ask. We're also going to take a look today at Canada's housing crisis. We're going to take a look at travel bans and air travel and your holiday plans, how they may change, whether you like it or not, based on Omicron, this new COVID variant, plus other news of the day as it develops. But all of the buzz here in studio this morning uh, very quickly, my friends, is based on a wager, a high-stakes wager that was made on Friday's show as uh, the cream of the crop of the Canadian Football League, the Hamilton, Hamilton Cats played host, Grey Cup host to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. There were blizzards on the line. What more fitting wager for a Canadian Football League championship game in December than blizzards? I love it. Sir Hoyles, I, I have to give you credit today. You've you've not, I would I wouldn't say been gloating. It's been kind of just a quiet victory that you've exuded as we've worked.
2: I'm just classy. You know? <laughs> I'm just classy. You know, the gray cup was won by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Yeah. And the bet was that if they won, Sam buys me a blizzard.
0: That's correct, Sam. You were bullish on the Hamilton Tiger Cats. You liked the tie Cats chances. I did chances. like the cats. It went to overtime. Is there some solace in the fact that they were tied through four quarters? Well,
3: I mean, I, I, yes and no. I, I think that, like, you know, quite honestly, the first half of the game was a bit of a snooze. Uh, There was not, you know, a lot going on. I I mean, thrilling in the sense that, you know, even Hamilton, one of the things that I said is like one of the things that really made me favor Hamilton was uh, they had two serious threats. And uh, in in quarterback, I should say, and Dane Evans went down early in the first half. Jeremiah Mazzoli came off the bench, picked up the team, put together some incredible drives. Uh, Winnipeg just sort of had this this desire to win kind of hidden in there underneath them you know their backs were up against the wall and 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 hamilton had a commanding lead late in the fourth and winnipeg rallied back tied up the game actually hamilton kicked for the. this tie is the story they, of every yeah.
0: canadian football league it is there was absolute Great. madness and then there was more madness and then there was an unprecedented event and then cfl rules came into play the kind of wonky overtime format where everybody gets the same chance and it's its own thing. And I don't mean to offend CFL fans. You know, I mean, it's just, the league is very creative. It's, it's, it's very fan friendly, they say. A lot of wild things can happen. And that was the case, too. So a big overtime win for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. This, yeah. You know, I mean, Blizzard... Paying up, blizzards or not, it sounds to me like you're still okay with it. It was a good game for the fans. It was a great game. And it's for not the fans. even, it's not even like your favorite team lost. Your favorite team wasn't even in the mix, so no. it was more like you know, my favorite team was down there in last place, not even showing up. So, have you decided what blizzard you're going to go with?
2: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I just tuned in at the very end of the game just being like, oh. You just
0: wanted to see if you were buying or being bought for? Exactly, because
2: I was going to like, do I need to show up at the office tomorrow with (laughs)
3: blizzards in hand? Yeah, that's
2: right. And the bombers were were down. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to, should I text Sam? Should I find out what flavor he
0: wants? But it's the CFL. And then, within five minutes, it doesn't even everything matter. Everything was different. It never matters who's winning, nor how much they're winning by. In the CFL, you always have a shot. The game was lost on a wonky
3: interception. Yeah, like honestly, it was. It was a stunning moment where I think there was just you know people say "sun silence" in Tim Hortons Field in Hamilton, where it was just you know you, you couldn't you could hear a pin drop. The, the crowd was just our tie cats just.
0: Are done all this of a sudden. Just it's so just like, Canadian, oh my god, it? even the fact is like Tim Hortonsfield, of course, it's Tim Hortonsfield. <laughs> like, the only what would I don't know you get more Canadian than that? Like, it would well, maybe, the, the maybe Arkells like, play halftime. Yeah, the Arkells play halftime. You almost have to have like some sort of like a maple syrup adventure, and then there's you know, I mean, it's just like the halftime competition, Ma- maple syrup wrestling, <laughs> <laughs> it's dudes, the obviously, cup. yeah, dudes. dudes. Oh, well, whomever, equal opportunity, you know, maybe you could have it like sort of like a group wrestling match, tag team, who knows? This is going off kill. Filter, but I'm just trying to think of the most Canadian possible thing you could do.
2: I just feel like with the reference of Tim Hortons, where was Justin Bieber since he has the Justin yeah. Bieber? Well, yeah, I don't know if you can How afford do you say to it? Biebs? the the
0: the Tim Biebs, Tim Biebs. There but I go. mean, a Justin Bieber halftime show would probably. Although, I mean, with regards to the Super Bowl, I'm not. It's not apples and apples here, but but now, I mean, famously, people have realized that the artists now pay to be part of the halftime show as opposed to being paid because it's I mean, the weekend's a classic example. Uh, but yeah, anyway, regardless, uh, kudos to everybody who who enjoyed this this CFL season and they made it happen. Congratulations, to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, the win that I suspect that this audience will be curious about. Uh, to hear more on and to chime in on is Brian Jean, former federal MP. Uh, if you're watching outside of Alberta, you probably still recognize the name. He's, uh, you know, the, the former uh, MLA as well uh, for the Fort McMurray region, former leader of Alberta's official opposition, the Wild Rose Party. He's been out of the mix, politics wise, at least for the last little while. He's welcomed a beautiful new daughter uh, celebrating uh, his family. And of course, uh, you know, his 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 greater family in that region, big in business. There's a lot going on with the Gene family. But he wants to lead Alberta's conservatives again. And that starts by securing a seat in the Alberta legislature. This by-election looming. The premier's got to announce it by just just about Valentine's Day, I think. That means that the vote would go uh, sometime before mid-March. And. There wasn't exactly a long lineup of candidates to seek this nomination because the rumblings were that Brian Jean was going to run. And that's a big name, politically speaking, in the Wood Buffalo region, in the, that northern Alberta region. The question is, how big of a player can Brian Jean be provincially? Everybody will remember his tenure, obviously, As leader of the Wild Rose Party, as leader of the official opposition, but you might, if if you're being fair, but honest, analyze his tenure as one that was decent, but never truly victorious. He was never premier. He was never able to get over that hump. So why not? And that's a question that some people are going to be asking. But his journey back into Alberta politics began over the weekend with a resounding win, 68% of the vote, nearly 70%. That's a big margin over the premier, Jason Kenney's picked and supported candidate, Joshua Gogo, uh, who re- received 250 votes to Brian Jean's 529. Now, what makes this particularly interesting, as mentioned, this is the key factor here this is what matters most is that brian gene is running on dethroning on unseating the leader premier jason kenney he says that he's the biggest hurdle that stands in the way of the united conservative party achieving re-election in 2023 and probably mid to late 2020 now wait we have the election date set now don't we that was set last week so we know when it's coming up so uh, just under a couple of years from now and so Will Jason Kenny sign the papers? First of all, people are coming at me and saying because we've asked you to leave comments here to our our uh, our unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll, and I've and I've invited you to leave comments. And many of you are saying, "Well, listen, J- Jason Kenny doesn't have to sign Brian Jean's papers, does he? He's already said he won't stand in the way." And so we asked you, with Brian Jean sweeping a victory in this weekend's Fort McMurray nomination race, we know that he'll represent the party in that by-election sometime before March, unless Premier Kenny goes back and says he won't sign the papers. I don't see that happening. But we've given you four options, and I want you to give me your take. Brian Jean will either win and then chase out Jason Kenney as leader, win, then split the party. In other words, Wild Rose 2.0. Three, win, but languish in backbench obscurity. Or four, I mean, you know, the the fourth option, you got to put it out there. Will he lose the Fort McMurray by-election? Almost 17% of you say that's what's going to happen. Not a chance, first of all. There's not a chance in hell that I would bet my house. Brian Jean will not lose, and if somebody wants to take me up on that, I might think twice before I actually do it because I'd have to answer to my wife and my kid and our dogs, and you know that could be problematic. But still, I'm almost that confident. I would bet fifty thousand dollars with anybody that Brian Jean will win the Fort McMurray by election. There's not a chance he loses. I don't think. Fifty-two percent of you say that he's going to win. Then split the party. 20 percent of respondents to this point there's been about uh, 1100 votes or so we got about 12 hours left in the poll one in five of you think he is going to win and he will be successful in dethroning the premier jason kenny and then about 12 percent of you right now about halfway through this poll's opening about 12 percent of you think he's going to win and then languish in backbench obscurity now how does jason kenny handle this Jason Kenney's already said, essentially, that he'll sign the nomination papers. I mean, I I did not think that it was a wise political move for Jason Kenney to even let Brian Jean run here. And people could... I mean, you, if... People's memories are short, especially in politics. So Kenny would have faced some blowback from some members of the party and certainly members of the public would have taken runs at him had he barred Brian Jean from participating in this nomination race or worried a bar. Brian Jean refused to sign his papers, essentially. You know, people might cry about democracy or talk about grassroots or the big tent. What is the premier doing here? If I'm Jason Kenny, I might say, listen, there's a leadership review scheduled. If I'm defeated, then Brian Jean is welcome to come in and challenge for the leadership all he likes. But right now, with the Trojan horse analogy, there's no horse. Right now, it's quite obvious what the threat is. And to put down that drawbridge and welcome the threat into the castle, to me, what's the win here for Jason Kenney? Unless perhaps you invite in that small army over the drawbridge and then immediately lop off its potential the minute it enters the gates that may be the play for alberta's premier right now you remind your party members you don't have to talk to albertans writ large right now you remind your party members that brian Jean already had a shot at this Brian Jean already had a decent shot at this with a caucus and a staff and an organized party and a strong brand. And he wasn't able to get that football into the end zone and win that championship. He wasn't able to achieve government, minority, majority or otherwise. So what will be different now? Jason Kenney will say, listen, this is the threat to the unity that I was able to achieve all in I think that Jason Kenney right now is strategizing about how do you address this before it becomes an issue into March and then into April. April is a big month, that leadership review looming. So you now have a scenario where you've got Brian Jean. People are talking about Danielle Smith. She's confirmed her interest in seeking a leadership role within the party. I don't know if Danielle Smith goes head to head against Brian Jean in a leadership race. Paul Hinman, of the Wild Rose Independence Party. Remember Paul Hinman? I mean, the guy's been around for 20 plus years in Alberta conservative politics, fringe Alberta conservative politics. He's going to be running in that Fort McMurray by-election. Why is that significant? In theory, he could steal a few votes from Brian Jean. I don't think enough to play spoiler, but it does indicate That the Wildrose Independence Party, this is essentially the Alberta Separatist Party, does not intend to play nice nor collaborate with a Brian Jean-led party no matter what. They'd rather have their leader, Paul Hinman, in the legislature than they would see Brian Jean there. So that says something, too. You know, sometimes there are these conciliatory or collaborative agreements between political parties whose views are at least somewhat aligned where they'll say we won't run a candidate against yours in this writing if you don't run a candidate against ours in this writing. And then maybe we work together and form policy or, or work to serve our constituents. That does not appear to be the case, at least early on here. So we'll wait to see what this means. Brian Jean, keep in mind, is running in a by-election in Fort McMurray-Lac-La-Biche. But why is he not on this show today? And, and, and he's already on the road. We've spoken with his team, his organizers. He's embarking on a province-wide tour. He's going to be talking to United Conservative Party members and then Albertans, in a way, generally speaking, regardless of political affiliation, of why he believes that he's the best choice to lead this party. But there's not a provincial election set to go, and he's not the leader of the party yet. Keep in mind, this guy still has work to do to win this by-election, and by work, I mean sort of like finger quotes like work. I won't, he won't treat it like he's mailing it in, but the guy's going to win. He'll win by a bigger margin in the by-election than he did in the nomination race, and I'll bet a blizzard on that one. Maybe not my house. But Brian Jean's already campaigning province-wide. And so keep an eye on that because that sends a message loud and clear. And he's already spelled it out, too, about what his intentions are. You can let us know what you think about this. As mentioned, the unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll is up on my uh, personal profile right now. You can also find it by way of our official Twitter account on uh, that's at Real Talk R.J., Uh, Coming up in just a moment, we want to talk about Omicron and we want to talk about what it means for your holiday travel. Quickly, I want to remind you that the team at Eden Landscaping, you'd find them online right now at Landscape Edmonton, have a quick heads up for you. I mentioned it last week. They said, you know, we know a whole bunch of people in March, April, certainly in May are going to be coming to us with intentions of having this unbelievable landscape all completed, their outdoor space brought to life in time for July or at least August, if possible. But supply chain issues and a whole bunch of crunches on the system mean that Oftentimes, it's the veteran landscape companies that are putting in their orders now that are getting the ball rolling on the design process through the winter months. That are going to be able to make sure your project's done on time, let alone on budget. Mike and his team have been earning return business for twenty years. You can find them online at LandscapeEdmonton.ca. Also, big shout out to our friends at Park Power. They're powering the hashtag. We're keeping an eye on on Instagram, on Twitter at RealTalkRJ. I love they had on their social media a while back. This was a post I wanted to show you. They basically have the. Pros and cons lists of why you should sign up for Park Power. It's really just a pros list. There's no cons. It's why we're excited to partner with them, but they've got a great sense of humor. You can find them at Park Power LTD on Instagram. And if you use the promo code 2021 Realtalk, you can sign up today and get $70 off your first bill from Park Power. Well, Omicron has obviously become an issue. When you're taking a look at new COVID cases around the world, including here in Canada, it's becoming more and more prevalent. It's got a lot of people asking about vaccines. It's got a lot of people asking about public policy, including what holiday plans are gonna look like. We wanted to hit this from two sides. And so it's, it's a pleasure to welcome to the program cardiologist, Dr. Christopher Labos, who's also got a master's degree in epidemiology based out of Montreal. He's a regular contributor to the Montreal Gazette. Uh, John Graddock's been involved in aviation for years. He's lecturing in the diploma program in integrated aviation management at McGill University. He's held senior roles at Air Canada in operations, marketing and planning. He's also worked in the development of programs for the International Aviation Management Training Institute. It's a pleasure to welcome both of you here. Thanks for making time for us. Doctor, why don't we start with you? If you could paint a picture for us of how significant Omicron is and and what you're thinking about, where your head's at heading into a holiday season where we know more and more people are going to be inclined to see each other.
4: Right. So how significant Omicron is going to be, a lot of that remains to be determined. There's still a lot of unknown variables with respect to Omicron. What the, Based on the data that we have now, there is some suggestion that it is more infectious. Uh, there is some suggestion that it may cause not as severe disease, so more mild disease. And the preliminary evidence suggests that the vaccines we have are less effective against Omicron uh, unless you get a booster shot. By getting a booster shot, you likely you, to a certain extent, correct that issue of waning immunity. So this is the preliminary evidence we have. It is very preliminary, and a lot of that is going to change. Um, But the Omicron variant could be an issue, because especially when you look at what's happening in Ontario, where the number of cases from Omicron are really going up and making up a greater percentage of cases, uh, a lot of people are predicting that it's very conceivable that by January or maybe even the end of December, uh, the Omicron variant may become the dominant strain and may outcompete the Delta variant, so it may have a significant impact on our country and the the state of of COVID. What that impact is going to be is still a little bit up in the air because there's still a lot of unknown variables. And so you're going to see a lot of people making the case. And I think the very reasonable case that it's better to be safe than sorry. And so even if Omicron doesn't end up being as severe or as problematic as we think it might be, still a good idea to take basic protective measures in advance to make sure that we are ready should things start to worsen.
0: John, it's been a couple of years since you and I have spoken, but you were our go-to aviation expert because, quite frankly, you're the guy in Canada that's seen it all from an operations and management standpoint. You understand the industry, but I've not spoken to you since this pandemic touched down. And the aviation industry, could be argue, you could argue, has been one of the hardest hits, certainly. And it's one of the first things people think about around this time of year when it comes to spread, when it comes to policy, when it comes to travel bans. Based on your expertise uh, when it comes to aviation, how do the two storylines align here? Travel bans, spread on planes. I know a lot of people say planes, air travel may be more safe than people think, but there's a confidence issue here too. Where are you at right now?
5: Well, I think most people really who are planning trips over the next few months are basically suffering from a fact that for the last 18 to 20 months, we've been stuck at home and basically we've had travel bans, we've had a whole bunch of things thrown at travel that kind of said, it's not safe for you to travel, it's safe for you to stay home, uh, stay away from non-essential travel. And and now that ban has been lifted, um, organizations now are looking at trying to entice passengers to travel. The airlines have done a, a massive job of putting more capacity out in the marketplace. Initially back in the summer, they priced it pretty low. To, to fly and get people to back in the air. Since the summer, people have flown and we've had a significant you know upturn in terms of demand and prices now have gone up. In fact, I would say that prices today are probably more expensive than they were pre-pandemic. So, you know there, there's a lot of demand out there. There's a lot of people who want to fly. And the one concern that they still have today is really saying, how safe is it to fly? And it's not so much the, the, the airline environment, the, the cabin environment, or even the airport environment—it's the destination of where you're going to, and really understanding the extent of COVID uh, of COVID infections in those destinations, and also the fact that those countries have got some very, very changing, very rapidly changing conditions, and you know, uh, entry requirements that cause people all kinds of grief. And then when you decide to come back home, um, who knows what the conditions of entry or re-entry back to Canada will be? As we saw a couple of weeks ago with South Africa. So it's still a moving target. People are taking risk. And it all depends on you know, the extent of how much risk do you feel you want to take when
0: you fly. Yeah, John. And I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there, too, with regards to the the sort of fluid nature of this. Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine, I won't say who she is. It, it doesn't matter. I don't want her to deal with social media if, she, if anybody listens to this. But I'll just say she posted on Instagram yesterday a stunning photo from the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, she wrote it took Days to get here through floods, blizzards, borders and covid tests don't even get me started on the paperwork, but it was worth every minute. That was her post. So she acknowledges it was a pain in the butt, but she says it was completely worth it. Doctor, I want to get you to respond to that in just a second, but let's provide some context. Just yesterday, uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson declared an Omicron emergency in England, in in the United Kingdom and, and, and compiled with or at least running alongside what Canada's health minister had to say back on Thursday. I think this should be grabbing people's attention. This is the federal health minister in Canada, uh, the Honourable Jean-Yves Duclos, on December 9th.
2: No, no one should be surprised that uh, rules to travel in the UK or out of the UK or within the UK, uh, just to give an example, may change very quickly with the type of news that we heard this morning from the UK, what we also hear from Denmark, uh, from Sweden, just again uh, this morning this is this should be sending um no i think signals ringing bells to many canadians who would otherwise have thought of traveling in the christmas uh,
0: period so doctor your patients come to you and they say we trust you We've trusted you with our health for many years in some circumstances, I'm sure. Should we be going to see grandma in the UK or for that matter, anywhere else outside Canadian borders this Christmas or this Hanukkah or this Kwanzaa, whatever the case is, these holidays, what are you telling your patients? It's a very difficult question to answer because there
4: is no right or wrong answer. You can't point to somebody and say you're right, you're wrong. You can't point to any particular piece of data and say this is right. This is wrong. It's a question of risk and risk tolerance, and it's a question of can you do the things that are necessary to make that risk even lower? So if you're fully vaccinated, the risk is lower. If you're eligible for a booster and you've gotten the booster, the risk is lower. It depends what you're going to do when you get there. So the situation in the UK is not very good right now, but if you're largely going to you know, stay with family and not interact with other people and you're gonna be in not a very populated area where you're spending most of your time outdoors, then the risk is low. But if you're gonna be in a large urban center and going and doing social activities and interacting with a bunch of people, the risk is higher. So there's so many different variables that can play into it. And it becomes a question of level of risk and risk tolerance. On the whole though, if you're an older individual, if you have pre-existing risk factors, if you have medical issues, This may not be the best time to be traveling internationally. There is a certain amount of risk. You can negate a lot of that with proper public health measures like vaccination and wearing a mask and all that. Uh, But there's going to be issues. And it's a question of do you need to travel now or can you put off the travel for another six months when the situation might be more stable, when booster shots have been rolled out in a broader way and where the situation will conceivably be uh, better than it is now?
0: John, can you give us an idea, like give us laypersons an idea of what airlines like Air Canada would be doing right now when it comes to communicating with and even collaborating with the federal government or other airlines within the Star Alliance or whatever organization we want to talk about? What are airlines doing to inform or comply with or or try to help shape public policy? Well,
5: I think the airlines in Canada and around the world are really, you know, trying to make some sense about this changing landscape of regulation associated with travel. Uh, The airlines in Canada have uh, been instructed by the federal government to basically enforce um, certain conditions associated with travel so that when you do in fact show up at an airport to get on a plane, you have to show your vaccination passport and you have to have the documentation with you. Uh, And then you have to have your, on your return portion, you have to do the arrive can app, you have to have your 72 hour PCR test. And when you, get, when you get to Canada, you have to basically rely on the airline to basically funnel you through the testing process associated with arrival testing. So there's a lot of stuff that's been thrown at the industry to try to deal with over the last few months. The airlines basically have said, let's keep it simple. Let's keep it internationally applicable. Let's understand science. Let's make sure that we are in fact applying the best techniques for managing the spread of the Omicron and other virus variants, Um, but it it is complicated uh, and the rules are changing. And we still don't know, as an example, in Toronto at at Pearson, you know, they're saying they're going to test everybody arriving on international flights. What does that mean? And how does that work? And how do you, how do you tell the arrival passenger coming on a flight into Toronto? This is what you can expect as you come into Toronto airport to go through the process. Nobody really knows. They're still trying to work out the details. So it's still, you know, a certain level of confusion. And the airlines are just trying to scramble to try to get as much information as they can to, to the best of their knowledge about what the conditions are going to be on arrival
0: there's so much that the public including myself doesn't understand with regards to how this all rolls out and what it costs and what it takes to make things happen all i know is anecdotally i'm taking a look on social media platforms and and people are arriving in american destination for work conferences and they're finding three or four covid rapid tests including in the welcome basket uh, in their hotel whereas in other jurisdictions like ours these rapid tests are like 40 bucks a lot of people find them to be price prohibitive i know there's a lot of frustration because those types of tools can be effective and then there's the questions that people have now about their vaccines some folks are already at the booster stage others believe they've been you know fully vaxxed and adequately vaxxed to this point kids 5 to 11 are starting to get vaccinated doctor but meantime people are going this new variant i mean does this change the game completely what do you have with regards to public messaging on that
4: Well, here's the thing, communicating science to the public is always a difficult venture because you're trying to take very, very complex issues and trying to simplify it without dumbing it down. And that's a very hard balance to strike. The other issue is that the messaging by necessity changes. As we learn more about this virus, the messaging changes. And that unfortunately leads a lot of people to say, it's like, oh, the government officials are changing their minds. They keep telling us different things from, you know, one day to the next. They can't be trusted. And that degree of nihilism is very dangerous. Um, so, you want to make the scientific information accurate, you want it to change over time as it should without being inconsistent, and that's not always easy to do and it's not something that everybody is good at doing. So, it's, 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 it's frankly a struggle. And, and I mean, that's part of the reason why I try to do this type of science communication, to try to get the information to the public to explain the nuance to them, because so much of this defies simple explanations. It really is about nuance, like the questions of travel. There is no yes or no answer, as much as people might want to be told, tell me if it's safe or if it's dangerous. There, there's no dichotomy there. It's a question of tolerable risk and minimizing the risk. And that becomes a very, very difficult thing to try to explain in you know, a 90 second TV uh, TV segment. So you really just have to sort of try to explain to people like, well, listen, this is what you can do to make things safer. And then you look at your own personal risk profile and decide if you're willing to take that risk or not. And you, you really just have to keep hammering that home and try to give people the information so that they can make informed decisions and make decisions with real actual data, not with a lot of the misinformation that is
0: unfortunately circulating online regarding COVID. Doctor, shout out to every single science communicator that's been doing just yeoman's work over the last coming up on two years. Hard to believe I've changed my language, by the way, I, I was saying over the last 18 months for the last three or four months, and now I've just, I'm going to jump ahead and call it two years. John, in closing in so many ways as nine eleven uh, forever changed the aviation industry. What's one change you think will remain uh, when it comes to the aviation industry emerging out of this pandemic, whenever that may be?
5: I think the industry is changing, you know, it will continue to change depending on what you know the different variants are doing to the economy, to the economy, to flying patterns. The one thing you'll see change if air, aviation will be a lot cleaner. The hygiene we have on border airplanes, the hygiene we have at airports, touchless technology putting in place to make sure that you are capable of going through the airport and minimizing the risk of infections. Masks are probably going to be here for a while yet. So, you know, we have to get used to that. Uh, I know my friends south of the border are basically having, you know, all kinds of issues with air rages with passengers, not wanting to wear masks. Uh, But you know, it it is as Dr. Labos has said, continuously, you know, it is a means for us to minimize the spread. So masks are there. Cleanliness is there. Um, Social distancing. It's kind of tough on a full airplane. But, you know, I think that we're trying to get the air conditioning systems working so that they're clean. But, you know, the, the masks and hygiene at the airport are the things that are going to stick around for quite a while.
0: Yeah, I don't know about anybody else. I, I'm going to keep wearing a mask on an airplane if, if for no other reason that I always fall asleep and I have my mouth just wide open. <laughs> my wife's always taking pictures of me and posting them on social media, so the mask solves that problem. Uh, John Grattick, uh a lecturer at McGill University, longtime uh, senior executive in aviation. Dr. Christopher Labos, a uh, cardiologist out of Montreal, a contributor to the Montreal Gazette. Thanks to the both of you for doing this on a Monday morning. It's good to see your faces. My pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. You Take bet. Care. Thanks, gentlemen. Are you both like when it, when it comes to flying? I mean, uh, John touches on something pretty obvious, right? Says it's pretty difficult to socially distance on an aircraft. I mean, it, it, it's virtually impossible. You know, people sort of packed into this tube. I know that a lot of folks have said, "Listen, with what we know about aircraft and the air circulation," John just touched on it. They're trying to continually make improvements there. But people will say, generally speaking, statistically speaking, uh, there is not an elevated risk of contracting COVID specifically on an airplane. But but it could be the destination, or it could be whatever. I mean, common sense would also suggest that the fewer places you expose yourself to COVID, the fewer opportunities you'll have to contract COVID. So there, there's that obvious bit. But but were you to to travel, let, I mean, let's say, Sarah, it might be like a month from now or six months or 12 months or 18 months from now or whenever. Uh, can you see yourself changing with regards to your personal habits, behavior, preferences, etc. Adornments? Uh, will you fly differently now than you would have pre-pandemic?
2: That is just mind-boggling to me because I I can't even imagine being on a plane right now. I really can't. We kind of like
0: just give you the heebie-jeebies.
2: Oh, oh yeah, like yeah. I don't I don't go out, folks. Like <laughs> it's here and it's home and it's the river valley to walk my dog, which
0: is totally cool. So that's where you're at with it right now. You're you're still sort of in like. Limited exposure mode
2: Absolutely And I think I love the idea Of donning a mask If I were to travel yeah. Um On airplanes However There is that social pressure I don't Like maybe I shouldn't Even be admitting it But the idea that like If everyone else Is not wearing a mask And you're the one that is It's There's some serious Oh you
0: got people asking Like why are you not Why well, are you still wearing a mask yeah. You don't have to wear a mask You don't have to do it The why looks still...
2: and stuff Like there's There is social pressure there So it's I and mean You can go
0: incognito
2: that and yeah I'll, I'll do the sunglasses And the mask there And the go. baseball cap And
0: the baseball cap and, and you'll look like The exact type of person That would have never been allowed On an aircraft <laughs> before right <laughs> Sam would you change Like can you see it If you were to fly A month from now Six months from now A year from now Would you change How you would travel Mask or whatever else Yeah I
3: uh, It's hard to wrap my hair Because like again I, I Like Sarah I've gone nowhere For a very long time Road trips Places that are drivable Basically is where I've been able to go Right um, And I if I got on a plane today, I I think I would actually be quite comfortable getting on a plane today cuz you have to be vaccinated to get on a plane. Yeah. Planes undergo tons of sanitation. Like I think that there's it's one of those environments where you can tell that there's there there's no jerking around with the steps that they take to try and keep you safe on it. So like I actually would feel safe on an airplane with a mask on right now. But, you know, hesitant to go anywhere just because again I'm still kind of in this homebody mode this yeah. is like you know Which let's, is cool. let's just sort of stay put yeah. there's
0: there's no well I was going to say there's no right or wrong answers there are some wrong answers you know I think like, licking, like what? licking banisters not washing your hands after you go number 2 I mean there are some wrong answers when it comes to how people handle the spread of disease what about number but 1 but i have but i have very oh that's totally different Hoyle's. Uh, no, obviously i'm kidding um, Sam and I have gone on at length before about oh, I know. about how, how men approach washing hands after number one. Sam and I uh, fastidiously sanitize ourselves. We both know this. I mean our hands smell like I mean you know, that's what happens when somebody in our office building spends like thirty five dollars on hand soap and what we're gonna really use. Really nice soap every here. time every chance we get. Sometimes I'll just wash my hands when I'm walking by, even if I don't I just wanna <laughs> smell it. But in all seriousness, uh, some friends of mine, I mean, I see it. I bet it's the same on your social media, uh, your Instagram in particular. A lot of people are saying, <sighs> right, they've got their feet up or, you know, that classic shot they shoot, you know, they're shooting it straight out the camera from their chest and they get their knees and their toes. And, and then you get to see the the waves crashing in the background or the palm trees and the, the daiquiri in hand. And they and they say, you know, it was worth it all. Uh, We had to get down here. Some people with the caveats, right, they'll say, I know that not everyone's going to love this or I know I'm going to get some blowback. I saw one person. I don't know them that well enough to mutually follow another on Instagram. But but I, I noticed that they they requested no negativity on their comment feed, please. They wanted to get ahead of it. Right. They wanted to post their family photos of them in the tropics and get ahead of it, because I think some people understand that it's still somewhat of a contentious decision, I mean, if you think back to last year, people were outraged at those who traveled, especially if they were elected officials, right? That's why January 4th is our most downloaded show of all time because of Aloha Gate, because of how furious people were that elected representatives had traveled to Arizona and California and Hawaii while everybody else was ordered to stay home. Now, what will public health measures look like come Christmas, you know? Two weeks from now, two weeks right now, by the way, uh, you know, a lot can happen in those two weeks, but people are going to start making more concrete plans. I wonder if more people are edging toward keeping their plans. In other words, we're going to get the family together or are people leaning now more toward hey, listen, with everything in the news, including Omicron, maybe it's time that we dial things back. Maybe it's time we have another. Maybe it's time we have another Christmas or another holiday season away from one another. You can let us what know what you think uh, to talk at RyanJesperson.com. Are you traveling or not? You know, Chelsea says I, I like that planes are definitely more sanitary now than they were before I used to travel with antibacterial wipes and wipe down my own seat and tray. That from Chelsea. I can respect that. I know people that bring their own hot sauce to restaurants. <laughs> right? jason says we were told to stay home that's what caused the outrage not necessarily the travel i mean sure cart horse whatever tony says i'm going to mexico in january i'll continue to wear a mask michelle the says time,
2: the whole time they're gonna have really yeah, gnarly no tan lines yeah
0: yeah michelle says the concert and hockey game scenario makes me cringe right now Kim says, I went to a concert two weeks ago with with, within three songs, everybody around the stage. I mean, just everyone took their masks off except for my friend and I. Kim goes, well, at least we didn't get covid. Right. Linda Ray says, I'm like Sarah. I'm just still chilling at home. Eddie says, what's amusing is that the loudest by Canadian folks are also the first people trying to leave the country. I don't know. Mark says, I flew to San Francisco in October. Otherwise, I only drive. Bruce is wondering what about work travel? Fair question. I mean, I'm sure that Zoom works for a lot of things, but not for everything. Sometimes you got to travel. Sometimes you got to see and meet each other face to face. So can you do it safely? I've been on a plane. I was on a plane back in August. Or was it September? Anyway, it was in the fall. Uh, Flew out to Vancouver. I've not flown internationally yet. The whole process, I was impressed by it. Um, I was somewhat trepidatious, but I was convinced that I thought that, you know, I mean, If public health measures allowed for it that we could do it as safely as possible the word safe is always such a loaded word too i won't get off on too much of a tangent here but you notice that you know for example when it comes to harm reduction when it comes to the opioid crisis the language has changed from safe injection sites to supervised consumption services the word safe is no longer used and so if you say air travel is safe Maybe you can say something like it's as safe as possible, or there are as many factors controlled as possible. But if we've learned anything about COVID-19, we know that sometimes it can get you regardless of the precautions you've taken, including getting vaccinated. Your chances are just better you won't get sick or that the illness won't be as serious if you have received that COVID-19 vaccine. Let us know what you think. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. C- could be a, a straight up comment on this, or, or maybe it's a submission for Trash Talk. That comes up every Friday. A uh, chance for you to get a little something off your chest. And Maybe that has to do with air travel in the holidays or travel bans. Regardless of where you land on it, we'd love to hear from you. Trash Talk is presented by the team at Local Waste. They've been doing commercial and construction, residential waste and recycling collection in Alberta and Saskatchewan for a couple of decades now more than that in fact celebrating 25 years still family owned and growing they've got a couple of big announcements coming in the new year about how they're expanding their service delivery expanding their footprint and that includes potential entrepreneurial opportunities entrepreneurial opportunities there we go if you see a void aka an opportunity in your community they'd love to hear from you at local waste services you can find them online at localwaste.ca it's also where you can get a free quote on your bin Athabasca University is Canada's online university. You know, you can study anytime, anywhere. This is what people love about it and take as little or as much time as you like to complete your certification, your course, your program, whatever it is, Athabasca U is as flexible as you need it to be. If you've got a vacation coming up, no big deal. You're in charge of your schedule. So you're not gonna miss an exam or you're not gonna be studying the whole time you're away. AU's age demographics a bit older and it brings years of work experience to schooling. It's never too late to make AU part of maybe your New Year's resolution. You can find them online at athabaskau.ca. And a big shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. They've got these amazing holiday themed blizzards, including this peppermint hot cocoa holiday blizzard that's, that's all the rave. And, of course, Dairy Queen in the spotlight today. The Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road because Samuel Brooks will be on his way to one of them to pick up a blizzard for our very own Sarah Hoyles. I don't want to say after losing your Grey Cup bet, but... Oh, he let's, lost. Let's say he I lost. lost. He did. But, I lost. Be, but at least you lost the bet in overtime, Sam. So it, it's got to feel a little bit better. Score, Hoyles.
2: Score, yeah, a score, a score blizzard please. Cause you know, I scored the win. Oh,
0: I love it. I love eh? it. Eh? Very well played my friends. We also want to remind you that our email of the month contest uh, continues to run. This is the Real Talk Crescent mug that I'm showing you. For those of you that are listening on the podcast, this is version two of our mug. You can find them right now at RyanJesperson.com under the merch page. We've actually seen a real uptick in mug sales. I think people are looking to stocking stuffers and holiday gifts for the Real Talker in your life, the real passionate Real Talk listener or viewer. But once a month, we also select an email. The best of what we've seen through that month and we send a mug free to one of you. So keep that in mind as you're deciding whether or not you're going to take a few minutes to pound out a few thoughts on what you're thinking about. That could include what happened in Lac La Biche over the weekend. Brian Jean, former leader of Alberta's official opposition Wild Rose Party, won the nomination, which means he will be the United Conservative candidate in the upcoming by-election in Fort McMurray-Lac La Biche. He says he's running on one promise, and that is to basically boot Jason Kenney out as leader. Brian Jean says he wants to be the leader of the UCP, and that's why he's already campaigning province-wide, despite the fact that he's not yet seen the results of the by-election, which he will handily win, I guarantee you. That's the Jespo guarantee on that one, but still he's already started the work to become leader of the party. Our unofficial, unscientific Real Talk Twitter poll today is asking you what you think is going to happen with this. And and so far, we've got about 1,250 people that have voted. We've asked you, will he win the by-election and then chase out the premier? About 20% of you think that he will. About 52% of you think he's going to win and then split the party. In other words, Wild Rose 2.0 or some form of, you know, or wing conservative party. That's who will follow Brian Jean. 11 percent of you think that he's going to win and then languish and backbench obscurity. And about 17 percent of you think he's going to lose the Fort McMurray by-election. Those numbers really haven't changed since the first couple of hundred votes. It's been about half of you that believe he'll win the by-election. You're right about that. And then split the party. You may be right about that. And about one in five of you think he's going to be successful in his bid to chase out Alberta's premier. We'll get to some of your comments on this. I appreciate that we have 24 hours for this poll to run, which means we'll be able to review the full results on tomorrow's episode of Real Talk. Make sure you catch it. Let's turn our attention to rising costs in Canada a little bit later on this week. And this is our question of the week, the subject of our question of the week, which we'll talk about before this episode's done today. Canada's sky-high cell phone rates. There's another crisis that Canadians are more than well aware of, the federal government too, and that is Canada's hot housing market. Some are calling it a housing crisis. We'll be exploring this from a number of different angles over the next while here on the show, and that includes a conversation right now with Canada's federal minister of housing, diversity, and inclusion. The Honorable Ahmed Hussein was appointed to the portfolio back at the end of October. Uh, an MP for the Liberal Party, who sat for the Toronto area riding of york southwestern since 2015 i appreciate you making time for us on the show today minister welcome your perspective on this housing crisis the word crisis does it fit
6: well i think the the the, there's increasingly uh a larger and larger number of canadians who are finding it hard to access their dream of home ownership and uh we we know that particularly for young people and so uh we have to do everything that we can to to make sure that that's not the case uh but as as i always say yes the federal government uh has a role in this but so does uh the private sector the non-profit sector the municipal order of government as well as the provinces and territories Uh, so we have to do this together it's a national challenge uh, so it requires collaboration across all orders of government.
0: Are we are we talking about something like the, the $10 a day daycare plan where the federal government's got to speak with individual provinces and territories to custom design a solution that works in that part of the country? Or do you believe that there could be a solution, a uh, position that the federal government takes that applies regardless of where you live in Canada?
6: I think both. Uh, in terms of the agreements, we already have, uh, thankfully, agreements with each province and territory. Uh, Uh, through bilateral agreements where federal dollars are actually invested to build and repair uh, affordable housing we also transfer money uh, for provincial and territorial housing priorities they can use that money for any housing priorities that they that they need and so they they really end up doing that based on their local circumstances we also have national programs that are available for municipalities but also for nonprofits and and the private sector to access federal dollars to build mixed housing, affordable housing, uh, rental, uh, more rental stock. And we've introduced a number of financial tools that are led by uh, through the Ministry of Finance to enable more Canadians to access their dream of home ownership. We have a program called the First Time Homebuyer Incentive where, uh, you know, if you are a first time home homebuyer, uh, the federal government will provide up to uh, 10% of the value of the home in the form of a down payment that again is a, is to enable people to access uh, their dream of home ownership, people who may have a little bit of money but not enough for a down payment. Uh, we're also uh, proposing to move ahead with establishing a first-time home buyer tax-free savings account uh, of up to $40,000. So again, Encouraging people uh, and enabling them uh, to access their dream of home ownership. So there's a number of programs out there. I, I don't want to go through all of them because we don't. I don't think we have enough time. But uh, but make no mistake, the federal government has been back in the in the housing business. We have provided leadership through the national housing strategy, and we we've done a lot. We've really done a lot, and I can go through that. But there needs to be more uh, to do because that's what we've heard from Canadians in the campaign and, and after.
0: I mean, I want to just provide some context here. This is pretty wild. In the 15 years uh, from 2003 to 2018, uh, some cities, some major cities in Canada saw an increase in home and property prices of up to 337 percent, more than a 300 percent increase over 15 years in some of the urban markets. When you take a look at what the federal government's priorities are or your priorities as the housing minister, is it people experiencing homelessness first then families that need appropriate affordable housing, then the quote-unquote luxury of first-time home ownership, and then everybody else? I mean, do you have to make a priority list like that?
6: No, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So we, we do all of that. We have, uh, for, for Canadians experiencing homelessness, we have a federal program called Reaching Home, which has helped reduce chronic homelessness By significant amount throughout Canada, and we now have a new target to eliminate chronic homelessness functional zero in in communities and we're we're really pushing uh, for that and we've increased funding for that program. We do have programs to enable people to exit shelters and, and find independent housing, which, by the way, saves money for society. We have less policing costs, less um, healthcare costs when people are off the street. So even if you feel that uh, we shouldn't invest in this because it's costly, it's actually more costly not to address this challenge. And so uh, this should be a consensus across the political spectrum, that we should find permanent housing solutions for those Canadians who are on the street you know even if you you think you know that we shouldn't do that you you, you should consider the high cost that uh, uh, that that it takes to address issues challenges that come from the street with respect to law enforcement the justice system the courts as well as the healthcare system when someone has a roof over their heads they can restart their lives they can get a job they can go back to school it's very difficult to do that when you're on the street in terms of um, building more rental units we know that in many cities in canada not all of them but in a lot of cities people like Paramedics, construction workers, firefighters and teachers are being priced out of the rental market. They're moving out further and further away. So the federal government responded by introducing the rental construction financing initiative, which is about building more rental stock. So that you know, first of all, uh, and a percentage of that is affordable, and then by by sheer numbers, by building more rental stock across the country, you stabilize those those rental rates, and then finally, as you said. It's about also enabling more people to access uh, home ownership, but also building deeply affordable housing for the most vulnerable, uh, vulnerable seniors, uh, indigenous people with high housing need, uh, young people who are being priced out of the market, who are trying to go to post-secondary education. We have to to continue to make those investments. We've been doing that, but obviously the other orders of government have to do that too. The final thing I'll say is we can invest as much as we want, The province can invest as much as they want, but a lot of times, it's the municipal order of government that determines building permits, zoning, uh, the the speed in which things happen. So we find that there, there's sometimes a lack of capacity to move forward with projects. So we're uh, proposing to uh, establish A municipal housing accelerator fund of $4 billion to to incentivize municipalities to move faster. Things are taking too long. If you want to build uh, mixed housing, uh, high-rise in a major city in Canada, it takes too long to do that, and we shouldn't. The need is great, and we need to move faster.
0: Obviously, housing prices are highest in urban centers like Toronto and Vancouver. I think back to 2016 when the B.C. government introduced a 15 percent foreign buyers tax, which was then bumped up to 20 percent. Now, I know that you'll probably talk about the federal government's one percent speculation tax on foreign buyers if homes are sitting empty. But what is the federal government? What have you learned from that model in B.C.? And do you see it as a a viable policy to maybe build a, a federal action on in the context of taking action uh, against speculators and, and foreign investors?
6: Well, I, I'll actually pleasantly surprise you. Uh, 1% was our position prior. We're now proposing to ban temporarily for two years and see how that works. Ban foreign investment in our real estate sector and and and, and ensure that uh, that uh, that is the case for at least two years. Are so you concerned about the message that that we've, might we've send? Gone be, we've gone beyond the 1%. Well, look, you, you started this show talking about astronomical increases in housing prices. Uh, And you have you've asked us uh, what actions we're taking. And I'm telling you the actions we're taking. Uh, But now you're saying we're sending a different signal. No, I'm asking you if you're concerned. I'm
0: asking you if you're concerned about it, because I know that some people might be kind of pissed off about that type of thing.
6: Well, we, we are focused on making sure that we address the housing needs of Canadians. And our real estate sector should not be used as an investment portfolio. It should be used to provide homes for Canadians. You, you know, I, I think we, we can both agree that homes should not be vacant for a number of years, that homes should either be lived in or rented out to Canadians. I think we can we can agree with that. And so we have to put in measures to incentivize uh, folks who own real estate who don't live here who are not not canadian to rent out their units and to do that we have to we have to place those taxes and making sure that that moves them in the right direction real estate is to be lived in uh, residential real estate is to provide homes for Canadians, not uh, items as investment uh, portfolios for uh, uh, for unnamed foreign companies. I want
0: to show you this. This is a Reuters headline. This one in particular ran in the National Post, but similarly worded headlines ran across the country. There's nothing uh, that's inherently wrong about the details in the headline. Canada opens door to immigrants adding fuel to hot housing market we know that immigration is important for addressing a number of things including a stagnant birth rate uh, some of the employment stresses that certain industries experience etc are you concerned about that framing are you concerned about what it may prompt some people to think and and what's your take on the premise that immigration well, think, fuels the uh, I- market
6: I I think there's always education and awareness raising needed when it comes to immigration. I think immigration is a net positive for Canada and, uh, you know, I've traveled across the country in the smallest of communities that are demanding more skilled immigrants to come in and help them grow their local economy. Uh, We need immigrants to continue to fuel our labor market participation but also to be able to eventually pay for our um, social programs and and so i think you know you you can grow your immigration numbers but you can also address the housing challenges faced by canadians in the last uh, 18 months we we didn't have a lot of immigration and yet the housing market continued to be out of reach for many canadians so i think we have to we have to deal with both we have to Yes, address the housing challenge, but also, of course, continue to be a welcoming country for 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 newcomers, who, by the way, help us grow our economy. Um, if Canada didn't have any immigrants, we would have we would be in a lot of trouble in filling unfilled jobs. There's so many regions in Canada who rely on uh, skilled workers, temporary foreign workers, to to. To, to grow the economy. And we, we, we have to make sure that that's, that continues to be the case.
0: I know that uh, Berlin raised eyebrows around the world when uh, a recent vote uh, opened the door to seize homes from corporate landowners. And I know questions have been asked, including uh, here in the Toronto Star, whether or not Toronto should consider doing the same to make for cheaper housing. What's your take on this? Somewhat of a remarkable vote.
6: Well, we're going to uh, see we're gonna keep a close eye on it because they haven't actually uh, sort of executed that vote. I mean, the the vote, we saw the result, we saw the decision, but it will be interesting to see what they will do in terms of actually executing it. As you know, sometimes when you have such a huge amount of purchase uh, by government uh, private sector takes advantage by raising the prices so we'll see how that actually works out in practice and we'll we'll be monitoring that very very closely what i want to say to to you and through you to your listeners and viewers is that we already have mechanisms in place to enable uh, municipalities to purchase properties and turn them into affordable housing. Uh, we introduced the Rapid Housing Initiative in the middle, in the beginning of the COVID 19 pandemic, and now we're in the second round of the Rapid Housing Initiative. Through that initiative, half of that money goes directly to municipalities to purchase land and to purchase properties and convert them into affordable housing. The other half is going to nonprofits to do the same thing. And it's 100% federally funded. The new proposed Four billion dollar housing municipal housing accelerator fund will do the same thing. We will hopefully enable municipalities to buy land, to also hire more planners, more city planners, to remove some of the, um, some of the bottlenecks and the log jams that are preventing uh, projects to move forward and more affordable uh, housing to be built. And quite frankly, more housing supply. Period. A part of the challenge that you mentioned with housing prices can can be addressed with building more supply. Now, how can we build more supply if we don't equip municipalities to have a bigger capacity to do so? They're facing a lot of challenges. So the $4 billion will be, by the way, applications-based. It won't be per capita. So if municipality A wants to move forward and be ambitious, they'll get access to that money. If municipality B wants to cater to NIMBY, ZIM, and so on, Then they won't get access to that money. And municipalities can take leadership. I can give you examples of municipalities in Canada that now require any condo developer to set aside 20 percent of the units for affordable housing. In exchange, the municipality will provide will pay for all the services that are going to that new building. What's that's leadership?
0: What's a municipality you think that's really nailing it on this file right now?
6: There's, I mean, there's so many. There's so many municipalities that are experiencing uh, that are demonstrating leadership. London, Ontario has eliminated chronic homelessness among its veterans population. Burnaby, British Columbia requires twenty percent affordable housing to be set aside for any future condo development. Uh, the City of Vancouver is ex- is exploring intensification of single family. Dwellings. The city of Toronto has already implemented inclusionary zoning, where if you're if you have a single-family home and you have enough space, you can build a laneway home, and you can build a basement, and you can build a, a, a backyard home. As of right, all you need you don't need to re, you don't need to go through the zoning process. You know, you just need to get a permit. Um, ca- uh, the city of Edmonton has dramatically reduced. It's, it's a number of homeless individuals. Um, and they did that by having a by name list where they knew everyone who was on the street and who was coming in, who was le- exiting homelessness. And they had specific policies to target individuals to en- enable them to, to, to overcome chronic homelessness. The city of Calgary has done amazing work to mirror its pro- planning processes with the national housing strategy. And what that has done is it has it has cut in half the waiting times for projects to move forward through federal dollars so there's so many examples that i can i can use uh, and and what we're trying to do through that municipal accelerator fund is a you know redouble and speed up the ones who are and incentivize even more uh, right policies by municipalities and then incentivize the ones who are not doing these things to consider doing that because otherwise they'll miss out on four billion dollars worth of support,
0: the Honorable Ahmed Hussein is the Minister of Housing, Diversity, and Inclusion. Appreciate your time and perspective this morning, Minister.
6: Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate the conversation. You
0: bet. Uh, we'll continue to cover the story, and a big part of that will be your take—you know, what you think the right solution is—and and, and a lot of that based on your personal experience. Want to hear your story? Uh, I saw an audience member that that wondered why why would we care what foreign buyers think about our policies or whether or not foreign buyers might be upset about our policies? That's missing the point. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Canadian sellers. Uh, If you have a condo or if your parents have a condo and that's their nest egg, uh, let alone a house in somewhere like. Vancouver or Toronto or Calgary, for that matter, or wherever else cities that are seeing a real spike in home prices, they're making homes, quite frankly, unattainable for a lot of people. But if a big part of your parents or your plan has been to liquidate that asset and to live off the equity in that home, what's better for you, a hot housing market or a chilled out room temperature housing market? A hot market's better for you as a seller. A hot market is not as ideal for you as a buyer. You're going to tell me something I don't know. But if a federal government policy means that your home loses 20, 25, 30 percent of its value on an open market, what does that do to your future? What does that do to you? Now, it's easy for each one of us to approach this debate based on our own personal scenario If you're 31 years of age and you're expecting and your family's growing and you need a place that can grow with your family and you're looking at some of the prices right now going, how the hell does anybody make this happen? You don't care that somebody in downtown Vancouver is not going to get $2.7 million for their knockdown duplex, right? But if you're the person that bought that duplex in the 1980s for 300 grand, and now you're looking at 10x return, which would allow you to send your kids to university, you could pay off uh, somewhere else, maybe a little bit more affordable, maybe you're going to move to the BC or interior, or maybe you're going to take your wagon and head east to the beautiful promised land of Alberta and pay for your house entirely with no mortgage and still have some left over for fancy holiday treats and Christmas presents and taking the kids on a big vacation and surprising your nephew or your granddaughter with university tuition, then you want to see as many options at your disposal as possible with regards to who can buy that house. Now, one is better for the general population and one is better for the individual. But how do most people decide where they land on policy? typically in the still of the night between their own two ears they care about what benefits them the most and that's why i don't think that there's one simple solution to this because regardless of what the policy is somebody's benefiting and somebody's getting screwed the question is who deserves to get screwed for the greater good Now, that may not be the most optimistic framing of the question, but we'll continue to explore it. And we do invite your comments to talk at RyanJesperson.com. Who gets to get screwed? Who deserves to get screwed for the the greater greater good? good. I mean, isn't that sort of the whole Machiavellian thing? (laughs) Hasn't that been the question that has stood the test of time? Who deserves to get screwed for the greater good? And in the housing market, it's going to depend on people's personal circumstance. Mm. People that are scraping by. I mean, we had personal experience on this, uh, and I don't want to get too personal about this, out of respect for for our tenants. Uh, but but we have a condo that we're absolutely upside down in, uh, based on factors outside of our control, and we're also lucky enough to have wonderful tenants in there who, through the course of this pandemic, for factors based on factors outside of their control their bottom line changed a whole bunch. And they came to us and said, we quite frankly can't afford to live here anymore, but they were such good tenants. And I knew that what they were saying to me was in good faith. And I knew that it was true. And so we reached an agreement to drop their rent down because they're such valuable tenants. Now I know that they would love to buy the place because we've talked about it. And quite frankly, I'd love to sell it. I'd love to hand them the keys and never think about it again. But it's unattainable to them right now. So they're between a rock and a hard place. This is just one example. This is just one small family unit out of millions across the country. They're paying as much as they can possibly afford, which is a relatively modest amount. But based on your perspective, it either is or it isn't. And they love to own the place, but they can't come up with what they need to do to get the place In their name. And there's a lot of people in that position who don't have a ton of sympathy for folks that aren't going to make two or three or 10 times what they paid on their property when they first invested in it. On the flip side, I've had conversations with smart people that have made a lot of money. One in particular, one of my friend's dad's Who's done really well, smart guy, savvy guy. He says to me, if he had to do everything all over again in his whole life, and I haven't asked him this in the last 10 years, this was 10 years ago, so maybe the, the landscape's changed. He told me he'd never have bought a share in any company his entire life. He said, I would have done it all in real estate. A lot of people have been really bullish in real estate, and a lot of these people, I think, are somewhat concerned about the role that the federal, provincial, and municipal governments may take in controlling housing prices that might be their framing on this
2: i feel like there's a certain you know time period when that made sense because yeah my folks were able to buy a house that's in a in, uh, central location for a steal of a deal now like I, it's mind-boggling they you were almost able-
0: wish you didn't hear what they paid right
2: oh yeah it turns <laughs> my stomach <laughs> like, but you're you happy know? for them right because oh. it's your folks yeah but I, but I also and your inheritance. <laughs> you said the unspeakable thing—the thing that we're not supposed to talk about. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I just feel like that That reality does not exist anymore It's
0: a completely different landscape Being it, able to buy a house? It's completely different I don't know I mean, starter homes I saw someone on our live chat I apologize I'm not remembering the names It's just There's a lot of chat happening But someone said something like I mean, the root cause And again, this is based on Their perspective, I'm mm. sure Everyone has their own take on this But someone said It's the lack of starter homes Or lack of availability Of starter homes But starter homes Starter homes Are like 350 dollars 400000 I mean, if you're listening to this In Vancouver Vancouver, starter homes are eight hundred grand. Right? If you're listening to this in uh you know uh Middle Lake, Saskatchewan, a starter homes forty thousand. So everything's gonna be different based on your perspective. Sam, I can just your your eyes on this, you're following this intently. Remind me, you and your fiance, Kelly, you guys own or rent. You're we do own. You yes. own, right? Okay. Yeah.
3: But, you know, I I think one of the things that I always think about a little bit when we talk about housing affordability, but also just the idea of like house prices and commodifying housing a little bit is there's only one part of your life, you know, assuming that you want to be a homeowner, because not everybody does. A lot of people like to rent for their entire life. It gives them freedom, gives them mobility. They can up and move whenever another city has a better job opportunity for them. And and that's, you know, one of the things is it's very North American culture that we all have to own our homes. Um, At the same time, you know, when I... I was fortunate that I got a very small inheritance from my deceased grandparents, and it was enough for a barely scraping by down payment of our house. And, you know, it was it was the smart decision because we're building some equity in it. We've got something to our name and we've got, you know, this asset that we can we can sort of have in our back pocket if we need it. But but thinking about it broader scales, like I think that, you know, housing affordability is a really important factor when you buy into the market is like, to me, it's, you know, when you buy that starter house, that's the first time that you're ever taking that big leap of faith. Anytime after that, you're very likely buying into the same market that you're selling in. So, you know, not necessarily saying that you're going to make bank on your house and upgrade or not necessarily saying that, you know, you're going to take the small loss and 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 but it's okay because the house that you're buying afterwards is is cheaper. I'm just sort of saying it's like, you know, once you're in you have a lot more power and i think that policy
0: needs to be structured to get more people into the game sure but you also said that the biggest or maybe not the biggest i'm going to put words in your mouth but one of the things that that appealed to you with regards to getting in on home ownership was that you could build equity so if policies then unfolded uh, policies became relevant that impacted the equity that you were building for the greater good are you okay with it that's the question we're asking people right yeah. no one's going to be disappointed that they're equity in their home has grown to a greater degree than they forecasted. Everybody would rather get more for their house than less. I don't believe for a single second that there are people out. Maybe there's one or two or a handpicked number of people that would say, I would rather not profit on my home. And generally speaking, have a world where home ownership is more affordable. I think the average person would rather see their listing, go to competing offers, and they'd rather sell it for way more than they listed it for. In other words, they'd like to see the housing market as hot as humanly possible. It doesn't land well with people that are trying to get in, but you know, buyers and sellers are coming at this from different angles. And so you're going to have two different perspectives on this. And probably, generally speaking, and again, I'm speaking very generally here, it'll be a generational divide. It'll be people that are looking to cash in on their housing investment, and then you've got the different group of people, typically, probably younger people, though not exclusively, that are looking to find a way in. And the question is, what does the federal government do in a way that doesn't completely disrupt the industry? But, you know, we take a look at, for example, you know, news that'll happen. This was the whole, and, and again, I'm going so abstract on this, but trust me, there's a point. Why did the Alberta government believe that it, it needed to communicate to its citizens that it was gonna take seriously the threat of foreign influenced campaigns against alberta oil because that messaging resonates internationally and it impacts the confidence that potential investors have in alberta's oil sands or in the province of alberta generally speaking right so we understand that confidence based on policy is an issue and so what does the federal government's policy or the provincial government or municipal government's policy due to investment confidence in our markets generally speaking. I think that that's something that is relevant and I think that that's something that would be of concern to people as they evaluate government policy. Nobody's ever going to be completely happy with anything. And I think that the job that Minister Hussein has and the liberal, gov- liberal government is to is to find something that people can swallow. That people can say, based on these principles, we can see this being intuitive, we can see it being realistic, and we can see it rolling out like it's feasible. I think Canadians will hope to see that. Can you load up these photos that Chris Sturwald was tweeting at us yesterday? These were unbelievable. Now, this is interesting and relevant because Chris Sturwald is the drummer from Ayla Brooke, which sings our title tune. He is the drummer of the soundtrack of Real Talk, and that's why his tweet really jumped out at me over the weekend. Check this out. He went to Friesen Brothers and picked up an eight and a half pound rib roast He rubbed it with some some coffee spice and, and, and some Hawaiian salt, and he said it's in the oven searing, and then it's low and slow, baby. Look at that thing You can imagine if you're tuned in on the podcast What an eight and a half pound rib roast looks like Here it is resting Congratulations to Chris on what looks like A beautiful venture you know you can trust Friesen Brothers they're real Butchers with all of your Protein needs through this holiday season Don't forget they've got an amazing new Vegan section as well in their brand new South Edmonton store if you feel like Doing none of the work but receiving All of the praise you can leave all of Your holiday feasting to the Sea. Chefs at Friesen Brothers. You can check them out online at Friesen.com for more on ordering your ready to heat holiday feast. Make sure you get in on that before it's too late. Also, big shout out to our friends at Breathe Outdoors, a huge winter adventure sale on right now. You can see it at BreatheOutdoors.ca. Up to 40% off outdoor gear, including Kuma. Mountain Hardware, Yeti, Osprey, Patagonia, the North Face. That's what they got going. But if you want to find out specifically what qualifies for that 40%, I encourage you to sign up for their newsletter online at breatheoutdoors.ca. You know them since the 1960s. They've been Campers Village, but now they're broadening their offerings to include everybody who loves snowshoeing and climbing and paddling and dog walking and everything else. We also want to recognize all of you that have... Taking a flyer on our Real Talk Cask number one bourbon By the team at Woody Creek Distillers We've got word that they still have A few bottles left at Sherbrooke Liquor And Whiskey Drop in Edmonton As well as down at Vine Arts in Calgary This is a cask that I personally selected With the team from PWS Imports Out of Edmonton It's a 100% Olathe Corn Whiskey Finished in the classic bourbon tradition That's Virgin American Charred Oak It's smooth, a little bit earthy, not so smoky, and you can definitely taste that corn. It's perfect for the whiskey lover on your list. Make sure you pick it up today at the locations that I mentioned. We wanted to give you a heads up before we sign off for the day that the team at Y Station has posted our brand new Get Real Question of the Week. Now, we've got a conversation coming up a little bit later on this week with McGill Professor Paul Beaumont about a proposed deal between massive telecommunication companies, Rogers and Shaw. What will it mean for your mobility prices? What's it going to mean for what it costs you to keep your phone? We want to know some quick thoughts on what you think about mobility and telecommunications in Canada, and generally speaking, how it affects your life. There's a bit of a theme to this week's shows housing affordability, cell phone affordability, and we want to be able to have an informed conversation. And so we ask you to take literally 30 seconds. This is a quick one this week, maybe a minute at ryanjesperson.com and fill out our question of the week presented by the team at Y Station. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to take a look at the results of our most recent question of the week. We asked you about photo radar and the results didn't go exactly where we thought they would except for the fact that the grand majority of you have received a photo radar ticket. Now, what you think about it, what behavior it's changed, and what you think policy should look like may not be so easy to pin down. And we'll take you into those results coming up on Tuesday's episode. Our friends at Kubi Energy wanted me to remind you that their work does not stop just because it's winter, in part, of course, because they've got an entire team that's always working in BC out of their Kamloops office. If the weather's mild enough, they're installing solar around the clock, around the calendar year. They're proudly based out of Edmonton, and that's where they're designing solar energy solutions to power your life including some of these agricultural applications we've been seeing pop up on their Instagram, I encourage you to give Kubi Energy a follow. And if if you have some questions about the future of solar, maybe some of the hurdles that have been overcome, including price over the past few years, you can get a free quote or check out their frequently asked questions at kubienergy.ca. Now, every Monday, our first show of the week, our friends at Kubi Energy ensure that we get the week started off on the right foot with our buckets full, with our spirits and our hearts full. It's a tradition we call positive reflections. I loved... This tweet that we saw Just over the weekend uh, Check this out This is absolutely fantastic stuff And a big shout out To everybody that does The right thing This is from Betty Who said To the person who found My husband's phone And credit cards And cash And turned it into the Safeway Collingwood store Thank you so very much Betty says I have a small Twitter following So it's unlikely That I will reach This person But I just wanted To post this anyway To remind ourselves How kind people can be well i grabbed this last night when it had about 4500 retweets and about twenty-two thousand likes and so it sounds like word is spreading but betty we wanted to use our platform too so if you're the person maybe out walking your dog right now your airpods are in you're listening to real talk and this is the first you're hearing of it you made betty's day her husband's too thank you from all of us. And this one from Paula, who wrote in to put this story on our radar. She says, Ryan, there's so much talk about how people believe that Alberta should better emulate Norway when it comes to energy policy. Paula says, now I know to a certain degree, it's apples and oranges, Norway's a country, Alberta's a province, and of course, there's everything else in the mix that complicates this, but have you paid attention to Norway turning its last Arctic coal mine into a national park? Well, Paula caught our attention and so we took a look and and this is the Svalbard Archipelago and and the Van Mienvoort. It's a striking wilderness. But as you can see, coal exports have been a big part of that local economy for many, many years. Well, experts say converting it now to the expansion of a massive national park will turn this into one of the most resilient areas under current threat from climate change. Look at this, it's a home to polar bears and seals and many other Arctic species. We're talking about 61,000 square kilometers. It's a very valuable hunting ground for polar bears. And in a press release this summer, the Norwegian government explained they were expanding an existing national park, Nordenskjöld National Park, to incorporate that fjord. From coal to a national park, Paula says now that's a Norwegian example I can get behind Paula thanks for putting that story on our radar if there's something that's inspired you that's encouraged you that's really made your day we want to hear about it you can send your positive reflection to talk at ryanjesperson.com and of course that's something that we're always keeping an eye on our email inbox if today's show has resonated with you we'd love for you to smash the like button tell your friends about it if you don't currently subscribe to our YouTube channel or our podcast thank you in advance for doing that now we've got a great week of shows in store I can't wait to talk to retired Colonel Chris Hadfield you know commander of the International Space Station making Canadians proud he's got a sci-fi career now what got him into that plus of course sky high cell phone rates and so much more we're talking about the issues that matter to you real talkers thanks for being a part of today's show and we'll see you soon
1: Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Sam Brooks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Tanya Franklin, merchandise operations Katie Cook Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson.